You're listening to a Scottish Poetry Library podcast. The fact we almost killed a badger is incidental. What? The way it flashed its rump to the headlights at the edge of the carriageway. The way the muscles churned under the flesh that seemed grey in the dusk. The way you knew it was a badger even though we couldn't see the markings, the way it missed the wheel by inches, that the near miss, the black and white flight of the beast into the wood seemed such a moment of freedom that I went home and ended things with you. Don't be ridiculous. I'm not superstitious. If we tattooed the road with the fur and the life of it, if we'd flattened it, I still could not have sat through one more night of silence. The fact we almost killed a badger is incidental. Anyway, we were going too fast to have stopped. Hello and welcome to the final SPL podcast of 2016. And what a year it's been, one perhaps to forget. It started with David Bowie dying and, well, I don't think I need to go on really, do I? Now, that all said, it actually wasn't the worst year ever for poetry. In fact, in some ways, it was pretty good. Nielsen Bookscan, I read here, reports that sales of poetry books were at their highest since records began, surpassing £10 million for the first time. In November, Wired published an article titled Don't Look Now, but 2016 is Resurrecting Poetry. Reading that article, one comes across this line, people are turning to poetry to process their thoughts amid the chaos of 2016. Because apparently in the 48 hours following the US presidential election, Poets.org saw a spike in visitor numbers. Uh, The website reported a 600% increase in the number of people tweeting links to its poems, the most popular ones being Maya Angelou's Still Our Eyes, Langston Hughes' Let America Be America Again, and Auden's September the 1st, 1939. Now, because it's the end of the year, we've been having a prize season, I suppose you would say. And so it was um, it was great to see Kathleen Jamie's The Bonniest Company uh, winning not only the Saltire Society's prize for poetry, but also the Saltire Society Book of the Year overall. Uh, about a month or two ago, we were blessed um, to have Vanny Capodale visit us. Um, to do a reading, and of course her um, volume, Measures of Expatriation, won the Forward Prize in September, and um, I should say as well that we recorded a podcast with her, which will appear, I think, in January, so watch out for that. And, um, of course, there was the um, very surprising and very pleasing to me, at least, um, uh, news that Bob Dylan won the Nobel Prize for Literature. Anyway, um, another great highlight of the year for me was meeting Andrew McMillan, who is the subject of our latest podcast. Andrew's debut collection, Physical, is published by Picador, and it won the Guardian First Book Award, which apparently was the first time a poetry collection has won that prize. So Andrew came into the library to do uh, this interview that you're about to hear in August, while he was up in Edinburgh for the Edinburgh International Book Festival, and I remember he came in on a Friday afternoon when it was absolutely pouring with rain. So I feel I must give extra thanks to him for coming in and doing that. A bit of biographical detail now. Andrew was born in 1988, um, not far from Barnsley, I think. And um, 
Before opting to write poetry, he considered acting in politics. Uh, and I guess we can say that Westminster and the West End's loss is poetry's gain. He's currently a lecturer in creative writing at Liverpool John Moores University. Uh, he's written for The Guardian and Independent, and he's also appeared on Radio 4's Echo Chamber and Something Understood. So without much further ado, here is that interview. So Andrew, I wanted to start by asking about a subject close to my own heart, which is growing up in a small village. Uh, you grew up in a small village outside Burnsley in South Yorkshire. I grew up in a small village, and I always remember that, that line by uh, Lou Reed, in his song Small Towns where he talks about the only good thing about growing up in a small town is knowing one day you're going to leave. So did growing up in a, in a, in a small village, did it inspire you negatively or, or positively? I'd like to think positively. I don't live there anymore so I moved away to university to Lancaster and then have lived really in Manchester since then. And I think what growing up in a small village does is certainly makes you yearn for something else because you're always aware that this isn't it particularly if you're kind of reading or if you're watching films and things you're aware that this can't be the sum total of kind of what there is and so you're always kind of looking with that kind of yearning eye to somewhere else which really poetry is as well poetry is always kind of wanting the thing that it doesn't have but certainly what it meant kind of practically was that I just went to the local secondary school where the teachers were really good but it wasn't a kind of great school and I had to mix with a lot of different people and so what that's meant to me I think is that I can I know that I can interact with a lot of different people and I can sit in a room of academics and be fine but I can go into a room of young offenders and be fine and I can go into a room of local people and be fine that I know that I can speak to people on different levels because you kind of have to in a place like that to avoid get beaten, to avoid getting beaten up every day. You kind of you learn, you learn how to survive, don't you? Absolutely, absolutely. It's um, an education in life, isn't yeah. it? So as a, as a teen, I think at a critical moment, you, you started to read Tom Gunn, and I wanted to talk about, or I rather wanted you to talk about, what the influence Tom Gunn's had for you on your, on your work and, and thinking about poetry. I first kind of found Tom Gunn, I'd just come out and I found his was given his collected poems and Boss Cupid, the kind of final collection that came after that. At first, it was just this sense that I didn't realise that could be written about in literature. So these poems about these kind of illicit encounters or these one-night stands or just this kind of yearning, this kind of love, and this democracy of love as well, this kind of community in San Francisco of kind of just open love. And I'd read Larkin and I'd read The War Poets and this kind of thing that Tom Gunn was talking about wasn't something I was aware of, and it seemed to me, growing up in that small village, impossibly glamorous. And I just thought, oh, wow, something that I want in my life is worthy of literature, it can be put into a poem. And that was the first time I'd really ever realised that. And so at first it was just that subject matter, and then going forward from that, I'm always fascinated by... Like, as a poet, he fascinates me because he's kind of too American for the English and too kind of formally English for the Americans. And so nobody really wants to claim him as their own. And he's kind of sadly neglected for that, I think. But what I really like about him is this ability to be quite free while still writing in a very syllabic, structured manner. And kind of as I got older and more mature, I think that's the thing I really kind of tried to take from him. But it's interesting, when the book first came out, I spoke a lot about Tom Gunn and that kind of influence that he'd had. And some older gay poets, some older English gay poets got very mad. And there's something very interesting about because they were alive when he was alive and they met him at readings and things and there was something about, I wasn't claiming that I wrote like him or that I'm as good as him, just that he'd kind of had an influence on me. And there's something very interesting about the ownership of him and kind of what generation has ownership of him. And one thing I'm really kind of 
ex excised, excited about, I think, is to is to get a new generation interested in him again because he seems seems to me to be sadly neglected. Well, I'm shocked to learn there's no real proper biography of him. It's no real biography of him. Like there's one book by an Italian PhD student, and she sort of published the PhD, and then there's one collection of essays by Joshua Weiner, and that's it. That's crazy. Think, what? If you looked at like the amount that's been written on Ted Hughes or Larkin, quite rightly, just nothing on Tom Gooden. He's got these wonderful archives in Berkeley University in San Francisco that just kind of have never even really been sorted out. There's boxes and boxes of daily... He kept daily diaries. He used to write yearly summations of each year and kind of some people kept all his set lists from every reading he ever did. There's like a gift for any biographer that eventually mm. wants to go and do that project. Um, but yeah, it, it amazes me that there isn't. I wanted to ask, or rather hear you read your poem, Saturday Night. Yeah, so Saturday Night was me taking Tom Gunn's poem, Saturday Night, taking each fourth line as the fourth line of each stanza and just kind of trying to map his experience in Saturday Night onto my own experience, really. And I never get to read this poem. It's called Saturday Night. Bedless and hungry, the night's pull drags me to a street it seems I only half knew. And now, paid up, Stripped off and toweled, I prowl the labyrinthine corridors and think that everything I read in gun or watched in porn was true. Bodies of men line the walls and I feel the ceiling drip and have a sense of being underground. No air that doesn't smell of someone on the breath of someone else. And when I call your name to slow you, it comes out strangled as in a mine, dim light, the many fault flaws. The private cell we visit first. The man who keeps on shouting that we shouldn't fall asleep. Then on to the TV benches. The bays, the heat, the tape's explosive sound. Reminders of the club that we climbed up from. And then heard in the distance as we walked. And you said we should try this. Where we could see people still entering. Though it was 3am. And wound up here sitting on an L-shaped bench, watching a film that could have been of us, except I lacked the guts of the two boys flashed up to us, stripping at lockers, and with a towel tied round, leading each other into each other, into the hair and the fold of stomach, and the wet smells of underneath, and then stepping out hot for love or stratagem, I miss my bed, given over for use by someone else's love, Want what's mine to be just mine. Want a world where not all will get whatever they are looking for. I remember once waking and looking over to the window of my lover from a room that wasn't his or mine. Lost or something close, the rapture they engage in, the tipping over inside and spilling out lacks happy longing. It's renewable each night. I go soft from overthinking. We go back to the cell to have another try. And hand to your throat, I slowly begin to build a city never dared before. Playing someone else, I throw you down. Kiss from where my hand is gripped to where yours is. I try to be what's expected. But it dies without reaching to its full extent. And I slump back against the wall, rolled shoulders. And I don't know if the success I hear through the wall is real. You stumble, at least in the endeavour we translate our tongues to speak for us. And we just stay there, 
chest to risen chest, like two beaten wrestlers who failed their potential. Gun was right, their skin turns numb, they dress and will depart. This was only ever for a night. There is nothing but the chemical smell of trying to get clean, the awkward look, the perfect body lingering on goodbyes. I leave, walk back into the early streets, I let the play go on beneath my feet. The night's been drank, the sun is low, the sun cannot find strength now for another start. I was interested to read that when you were younger, your sort of first couple of ambitions perhaps, or thoughts of what you might do later in life were, were a politician, an actor. And why that interests me is, of course, you've become a poet, and politician, actor and poet, performance is at the heart of them all. So did you, is that something that's always interested you? It's performance that's the constant rather than the actual jobs itself. I think possibly, and it comes from being, like I think it does for a lot of people, incredibly, incredibly shy and very socially awkward. And so the thing that I never like about the kind of poetry kind of life is the social aspect of it so I feel very uncomfortable walking into a room that's full of people and kind of having to make conversation with people but for some reason being on a stage and acting out a character is somehow safe and I think a lot of actors end up saying that and so I did a lot of amateur dramatics I did a lot of youth theatre when I was younger but I'd get in trouble for doing things like inventing lines in a Shakespeare play and it turns out you're not meant to improvise and things like that but it turned out what I enjoyed from that part of it was being stood on stage, getting a reaction from an audience, be that making them laugh or kind of making them smile, making them shocked. And then when I was a politician, I mean, I'd watched The West Wing, so I just had this incredibly (laughs) idealised version of what it would be like. And when I was in college, I did two weeks' work experience at the House of Commons with one of the guys that ended up in prison for expenses fraud. Um, And I just found it incredibly dull. Uh, It's nothing like The West Wing. No one's running about having these great epiphanies. And it turned out really, I think, what I wanted from that was to be a speechwriter. I liked the idea of creating oration, somehow kind of something that someone could stand on stage and deliver. And so I guess where I've ended up is a mixture of those two. And I do love doing readings and meeting audiences and things and kind of just entertaining them. I'm a big believer that poetry readings are never about the poet, they're always about the audience. And just that thing of, they've, you know, they might have paid a lot of money, they've come out on a night and they deserve a kind of performance in the way that an actor deserves to give them a performance. And so... I guess in some ways it, it is a kind of hangover from that. I guess if you're a poet, you're the actor, scriptwriter, director, producer. It's a one-man band, That's isn't it? Isn't it? Yeah, you get to kind of you get to have all the attention. Ha! <laughs> if you share it with anyone. No, exactly. Uh, the actor's dream. Uh, so I wanted to ask you about uh, particularly one of the lines in, in physical, uh, the beauty in ordinary. It's basically a strap line for the collection and your, your method, isn't it? I think so. I hope so. And almost maybe even like my manifesto of what I always wanted poetry to be. And it comes probably from growing up, you know, like we said, in one of those small villages in this kind of northern context, reading the poets I'd read, people like Jeff Hattersley, Tom Gunn, these kind of beat poets as well. And just kind of living a very ordinary life. Nothing really very remarkable has ever happened to me. And the poetry that I liked, the poetry that I always remembered, was the stuff that could just take something really mundane that people might overlook. But the poet's job then is to take it and somehow distill it or make it, refine it and give it back and say, no, it could be this, look at it differently. And so that idea that poetry could be about anything, I think is really important to me, that no one place, no one person is more inherently poetic than anywhere else. That the Lake District is only considered poetic because 
poets wrote about it. And so that, you know, why not write about this small village outside Barnsley? Why not write about small town outside Edinburgh? Why not write about what you know and where you're from? Because it's just as worthy of poetry as anywhere else. And that that always seemed to be really important, I think. One of the subjects or one of the topics um, you write about, I should say as well, one of the other great things about the collection is you've got a certain genius for titles. The one about badgers towards the end, um, what one's that about? Uh, the Factory Almost Killed a Badger's Incident. Exactly, that's a great title. And also, The Men Are Weeping in the Gym. That's another great title for a poem. And uh, in a second, I'd like you to, to read that poem. Mm. It occurred to me while I was reading it, I thought, gosh, given the amount of time people spend in gyms, uh, you know, talk about gyms, obsess about gyms, you know, how, how we're all supposed to be and fit and healthy these days, I'm, I'm speaking to you during the Olympics as well. It's true. Um, I just thought, why don't we write about gyms more? I mean, there's such a sight of sort of comedy and drama and, and, and tragedy, aren't they? God, yeah, and just all human life is there in many ways. And, I mean, maybe it is that thing that, you know, people feel that it's not poetic. And also I think the way to do it very simply would just to be to kind of parody it and to kind of make kind of really obvious fun of the kind of people that go there. But because I was interested in kind of looking at masculinity, it's this kind of crucible of examining what's really happened to young men in this kind of generation. It's actually quite scary. They, you know, they've replaced their ability to be economically or socially kind of dominant with just kind of getting bigger and bigger and bigger because that's kind of how they now manifest their masculinity it's mm. kind of and so you know you see young lads they're sort of 17 18 and they're not kind of scrawny and skinny anymore they're kind of built like kind of tanks and it's and it's a very kind of outward demonstration of kind of searching for their place in society kind of how to be a man really and it just it really fascinated me yeah, it's in areas where you know traditional industries have died, and the position that they would have, um, in in a sense, in the way that society is making them smaller and smaller in terms of the, the space they occupy. I guess they go to the gym and become bigger and bigger. That's the kind of idea, isn't it? That's such a much more eloquent way of putting it. That was good. Well, listen. Why don't you read the poem, which is even more eloquent? <laughs> the men are weeping in the gym. The men are weeping in the gym, using the hand dryer to cover their sobs. Their hearts have grown too big for their chests. Their chests have grown too big for their shirts. They are dressed like kids who have forgotten their games kit. They are crying in the toilet, and because they have built themselves as statues, this must mean that God has entered them. They are wringing their faces like sweat towels in the sink. Their veins are about to burst their banks. They are flooding out of themselves onto the tiles. They have turned water into protein shakes. They have got too close to the mirrors. They have got too close to the glass. And now they are laying in the broken pools of their own faces. The lines of them and the decline press. The bicep curl, waiting, staring straight ahead, swearing that the wetness on their cheeks is perspiration, that the words they mutter as they lift are meaningless, that they feel nothing when the muscle tears itself from itself, that they don't hear the thousands of tiny fracturings needed to build something stronger. You've done 
quite a bit of work with young offenders, young people, and you've often heard poetry described as gay. <laughs> and I, I was reading something you, you'd written about this and how the use of that word had reached out beyond the troubling use of the word to mean anything negative and into a preconceived notion of poetry as feminine and floral. And you suggested that perhaps the plain style of physical was a reaction to that. Could you talk a bit more about that? It's very interesting because if you asked any poet, they would say poetry tends to be dominated by older men. And so the kind of poets who kind of occupy the canon tend to be older men. Yet amongst young people, it would be seen as an incredibly feminine thing to do. Why would you want to write poetry? Poetry is gay and that kind of colloquial use of the word that they use. Um, And they see it as that kind of very florid, very kind of hyper-feminine kind of poetry with a capital P, almost kind of posy kind of style. And I just, I was very interested, I think maybe just because I was kind of, it was about the male gaze on men, and I was very interested in masculinity, and just what that might mean as a kind of very stripped back, plain style, that almost, I was very interested, I think, when I first began writing it, how plain you could get and it still be considered poetry and not just kind of a plain statement of fact. And, and I was really interested in that idea of kind of how much can something be stripped back to its bare bones, to its plainness, and is that somehow engaging somehow with a, a, a kind of masculine idea of something, or kind of is, would that be a man's idea of what poetry should be? It should be raw and kind of plain and stuff. And just kind of, I'm very interested in that idea of kind of stripping everything away and I think the bones of it and seeing what's left, maybe. At the centre of, of physical, mm-hmm. you've got a poem called Protest to the Physical and it's a, it's a long, a long, ambitious piece. Very long. Yeah. What was the, what the thinking that went into that? It was it's something that I've tried to do again since and I just can't. I broke up with my first kind of long-term boyfriend. I'd moved back home to Barnes, left university and was just kind of broke and really, really sad. And and I'd never really encountered that before. And I started writing these little... I wasn't writing anymore. And when it came back, it was like these little three-line things that were nothing on their own and nothing was coming. And eventually I just kind of gathered all of them together and started kind of thinking, well, what if they are something together? But I know it's not a narrative, but kind of what is it? It's this kind of fractured thing. And so I started thinking, well, what... And it was at the time when Barnsley was kind of... It just started to regenerate and then the kind of great recession hit and so it was kind of screwed again and so it was kind of I really was interested in like my personal loss this loss of that Barnsley was kind of going through and then this kind of loss of never being able to meet Tom Gunn because he was already dead when I discovered him and I think all those three things kind of began to weave themselves in and protest of the physical is um, something that comes from an Ivor Gurney letter and he wrote someone and I'm going to paraphrase but he just said I'm fed up of all this aesthetic kind of stuff about the war, I'm fed up of all this beauty, I want my poetry to be a protest of the physical. What I mean, what it is, is the, I think the one thing I've wrote that is as fractured as that, where my kind of thought process, because that's just the thought process I kind of had at the time, it couldn't, I couldn't join anything up and all, and I kind of composed it, I think, like I was imagining I was writing a piece of music. And that I would kind of go... I also thought it was like Howl if Howl had been set in Barnsley. <laughs> I would um, kind of just sort of say, oh, so one movement's my personal loss and the next movement's kind of Barnsley and then the next movement's a blend of those two and kind of thinking about that almost like I was composing this kind of um, classical piece of music that all these themes would kind of dip in and out of each other. Um, and it splits people. Some people kind of really like that. Some people don't get on board with it and that's mm-hmm. fine. 
Would it be possible to hear an excerpt from Yeah, that? shall we? Um, I never get to read this either because it's far too long. That's the death knell of any poetry reading, isn't it? If you get up and say, I'm going to read my experimental 30-page poem. <laughs> and everyone just like does this kind of existential sigh of despair. I'll read this bit, which kind of I think seems to combine most of the, those kind of three parts. Um, they're all kind of separated out by fake bits of um, graffiti as well. This, I think, is the third section. Graffiti, Oaks Lane, Pithead. Pit's clothes, we still sink into them. Tom, the two opposing wheels of voice, the rough joints of your transatlantic patter snailing down my neck, undress, love, lost, room exhausted as an empty city. You're gone, and who alive listens to cassettes anymore? Tom, you believed your touch was boring, the wound in the head healing, skin hardening to the blood, undress, touch, the only book, blood pumping, Tom, Tom. The fear is to die untouched, love lost, the smell of ageing which is really the smell of unclean teeth, to be nowhere except here, lame arm of the crane circling, a memory of gulls, screams from the roller coaster, two girls banging on a door, how thin the membranes that we build between each other, how easily broken, opened. Qualitative research into pub names in Barnsley, the mount, the corner, the closed since the smoking ban, the cross keys, the bridge, the Soviet, the station, the longbow, the room, the glass half full, the Joseph Brammer, the keep drinking, the mill, the white bear, the wear still here. Tom, in boxes, every letter ever wrote, diaries, your fears of what the love you had might do to him. Sleep with Tom, night after night, open at the spine, face pushed deep. There's been times I've woke and put my arms around a pillow, half dreaming it was you. I count what I've got, thinning hair, skin stretched loose from fat, a body only you could love. Mist frosts across the necks of flats, fires smoke themselves irrelevant. Your most loved song is overplayed and worn by too many singers, waking to a stomach, hollow, churning, forgetting all but the briefest inflections of your voice. Your mother called me to the window, fox in the road. It seemed young, or maybe foxes age more gracefully than us. It was early afternoon, you were sleeping. It seemed lost, wrong place wrong time, we just watched it burning down the avenue, red scar, field, way home, neighbour with her dog, a man flying a model aircraft, just like a real plane, only smaller. What someone listening to that poem might not realise, as opposed to someone who, who read it, is that you've got quite an interesting unconventional system of punctuation you kind of developed yourself. Could you talk about that? Yeah, I'd read this great anthology that I recommend to everyone called Children of Albion. It's a great kind of anthology that Penguin did of like um, underground British beat poetry. And I read that when I was really young and it's kind of full of this balmy stuff, but a lot of it written in all lowercase with no punctuation. And so what I took from that at first was, and I was writing these, when I first started writing these very kind of small little poems, 
that almost just felt like they didn't deserve uppercase letters somehow. They didn't kind of fit. And, and then what happens when you have lowercase but punctuation? It starts to look really odd. Um, I used to work with a, um, a poet called Sarah Hymas, who's fantastic, and she was helping me edit one of the pamphlets. And we were kind of having this debate about, you know, does that comma look weird when there's no kind of proper noun capital letter? And she just eventually said, well, what if there's no punctuation? And it was kind of like, it was, first of all, one of those things, oh, am I allowed to do that? And then this thing of, I thought, the way to do it is I need a system. And so it's interesting, some, you know, a lot of it about in contemporary poetry, but I like to know why there's a gap. And so I developed this system where I put three spaces for a comma, six for a full stop or 12 if it was kind of like a longer pause. And what I was trying to emulate really was how we speak. It always seemed to me that people don't really speak in conventional punctuation, a sort of pause where they should or kind of speak with a comma and then a semicolon, that people speak in these kind of breath lengths. Um, and so that's really what it was trying to emulate. But again, divisive. I'm very much angry at some people, which is great. That's why I'm going to keep doing it. My final question, you're a lecturer in creative writing at yep. Liverpool John Muir's University. And I'm always interested to know, what's the one thing you try above all others to instill in students? I think to go out and live it, to live their life and not worry too much, and that the writing will come later. I think particularly for young people of their generation, the generation younger than me, they're very concerned about their own identity, their own kind of political persuasion, their own place in the world, and they can waste a lot of time in a classroom sat theorising their own sexuality or sat theorising their own identity. And what I have to say to them in a very gentle way oftentimes is, well, go out and go out and meet someone in a bar. Do you know, go out and live it. And then three weeks later, a poem might come from that or a moment might come from it, but we won't get anywhere sat in a seminar room kind of theorising your own identity, which you'll then try and put into a poem, which inevitably will fail. You have to go out and just live it and go out and find, and put yourself out in the world in a way that lets poetry come to you. Because a lot of them might come into a classroom and say, oh, I haven't written anything this week, so I don't have any ideas. Oh, what did you do? Well, I went to the pub and I was hung over the next day, so I stayed in my room, then I went to the pub again. I thought, well, that's probably why. Go out and just put yourself in, out in the world in a way that will allow things to happen to you, that allow you to have experiences that eventually you might be able to write about. That's kind of how I try to live my life, and hopefully, you know, the ones that, are really passionate about it they take it on board and that my dear friends is that for now anyway that's our last podcast of 2016 so of course we'll be back in january when uh, i believe we'll be uh, scheduling our vanny capodeo podcast for that period um some thanks are due i think thanks to andrew mcmillan for coming in uh thanks to will campbell who writes and performs the music that you hear at the start and at the end of the show and thanks to you for listening. Thank you very much. Um, if you're interested in what the SPL gets up to between podcasts, there's a number of ways you can uh, check that out. There's our website, of course, www.scottishpoetrylibrary.org.uk. Uh, we also do Twitter. Our Twitter handle is at ByLeavesWeLive. Tell us what you thought of this podcast or how we're doing. Um, we have a Facebook page. Um, you just need to type in our name, that'll take us to uh, our Facebook page. And we do Instagram as well, uh, which we like to fill up with pictures of um, silly old poetry books and cool looking new poetry books. And that's it, that's it for now, anyway. So um, I shall bid you, of course, a fond adieu. 
and we'll play out with one last poem by Andrew McMillan. Thank you very much. Things men take, the room above the ceiling, the better pay, the jobs, your space at the bar, the piss, the smell of piss when they leave a room, the silence, the short road out and the long road home, the swelling they seem to want to break the walls with, or they take so much, it's easier to list what it is they leave behind, or they take without asking, like the man who takes the image of the blonde-haired girl in the low-cut top, goes home and takes his trousers off, takes the picture of the girl from the back, of his mind, takes his wife in an almost pleasant way, then takes his face over to the wall, takes more than half the duvet, dreams of the short road out and the long road home, dreams of taking everything in the house into his hands, dreams his hands are much bigger than they are. podcast. For further information about the Scottish Poetry Library, visit our website at www.scottishpoetrylibrary.org.uk, follow us on Twitter at By Leaves We Live, and find us on Facebook.